Church, that's all that we have. That's all that we need. You know, that, that he has us, that he has promised, he's covenanted to be with us, never to leave us nor forsake us. You know, so often we're tempted to look within to find hope. Uh, that's a fool's errand. The only hope is outside of us, and it's in Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, Son of Man, the one born of the Virgin Mary under the law to redeem us from the curse of the law that we might be adopted as sons. Oh, what a blessed hope we have in Jesus, our only hope. Beloved, if you would now please turn in Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. Uh, tonight, today, rather not tonight, uh, we come to the end of a long journey in concluding the book of Colossians. Some of you may have not been with us. Today we're Colossians at verses 7 through 18 of chapter 4 of Colossians. Oftentimes in our reading and study of God's holy word, when we get to the end of epistle, particularly the epistles of Paul, perhaps Romans or here in Colossians, we come to these greetings, these final farewells, and it's often hard to say goodbye. And, and Paul had that, I guess, problem, if you will, because his heart was so connected and, and so bound to the people. He loved them. You see, he wasn't just this theologian, this apostle who, who lived in his study, in the windowless study with his books. No, his heart was with the Colossians. He knew some of them, although he had not presently been there himself, yet his heart was with these dear people. And one of the things that we can do as we read through, think there's not much there, right? Kind of skim over it, and I think that would be a mistake. But I believe if we put forth the effort, right, believing that all the Word of God is profitable, every every letter, every sentence, every paragraph, every chapter, every book of God's Word is profitable to the man and woman of God, I believe we'll find, as they would say, much gold in them their hills, as it particularly relates to these greetings at the end of Paul's epistle. So let's listen now to God's holy Word as we come to the end of Colossians chapter 4, 7 through 18. Paul's in chains in Rome under house arrest. He's writing to the church there at Colossae. This is God's holy word. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities, my affairs, that is. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision, that is, Jewish believers in Messiah Jesus, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greet you. 
always struggling or agonizing on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature or perfect and be fully assured, convinced of the will of, or in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Well, this letter is believed to now be lost. And say to Archippus, see that or take heed or keep your eye on. You fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. When the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's go before him and ask him to illuminate his word. Our Lord and our God, you are our portion. You are the friend of Abraham. You are our father in Jesus Christ, and we too are Abraham's children, and therefore you are our friend, the friend of sinners. So we come now and we would ask that you would enable us to make much of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very thing that was being threatened there at Colossae through the work of the false teachers who had crept in to steal the freedom and the fullness of joy that the church has in the gospel. Oh, Father, that we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, only Jesus, our only hope, only Jesus, the bread of heaven, only Jesus, the Lord, our righteousness, only Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, only Jesus, the resurrection from the dead, the life to come in the new heavens and new earth. May we, your pilgrim people, be found faithful and be encouraged this day to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, even as you work to will within us. Enable me now to make much of Jesus, to decrease, that he might increase, that your people might be full of joy and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Now, the Apostle Paul has spent four chapters laying out the great doctrinal truths concerning Christ's person and work. First and foremost, his sufficiency, his preeminence, his majesty as son of God, son of man. That he is the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn of the new creation. All authority in heaven and earth reside in him. And now we who believe in him are in him, and all of his benefits are now ours. We are now the children of God as those who've been translated, as it were, from the domain of darkness. This present evil age is characterized in the word of God as the domain of darkness. And we've been translated into the kingdom of the Son of God. We have seen this over and over again, and we've also seen the, the implications the gospel has for all of life, in our workplace, in our vocations, in our familial settings as husbands and wives and children, 
and members in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul has laid all of this out in response to the false teachers who had crept into the church to steal the believer's fullness, his assurance, and to call into question the sufficiency of Jesus Christ that you need more than Jesus. And Paul writes to remind the church that though their trials in dealing with these false teachers are difficult, oftentimes leading them or leaving them feeling isolated and despondent, but they're not alone, that Christ is with them, that Christ is with the church. He's the head of the church, his body. And Christ and all that he accomplished had not abandoned the church and that he is at work in the lives of his people. That the kingdom of God is advancing even in the midst of weakness and humiliation, much like the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, humanly speaking, wasn't very impressive. At the end of his life, he had 12 men, and they all abandoned him at the very end before the cross. As far as trying to measure the ministry and the success of Jesus' ministry, you'd be hard-pressed to make the case that it was successful at least in the calculus of human math. And yet God continued to work sublimely, covertly in the kingdom as it was advancing through suffering, through humiliation, through the weakness of preaching, through the folly, Paul would say, of preaching. God builds the kingdom through bread and wine and a weak man proclaiming a crucified and risen Savior that God's kingdom breaks into this world? Well, yes, that's exactly how it breaks into the world. He's at work, and Paul gives us this list of names and greetings that testifies to the truth of the kingdom of God and the reality, the sublime nature of the kingdom. There are three observations and applications I want to make for you this morning from the text. First, a quiet faithfulness. A quiet faithfulness, that, that faithfulness is oftentimes quiet, right? It goes on behind the scenes. There's a steadiness about it. There's a, a sublimeness about quietness of faithfulness. There's a genuine fellowship in the body of Christ. As, as Christ is in us and we are in him, we are united together. We share in each other's gifts in the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, there's a heartfelt forgiveness, right? When Christ and his gospel at work in us, not only will there be a vertical forgiveness between the sinner and God, there'll be a horizontal forgiveness. We'll be a people willing and wanting to live reconciled to our brothers and sisters in the body. So a quiet faithfulness, a genuine fellowship, and a heartfelt forgiveness. Let's look first to a quiet faithfulness. Notice where Paul begins in verse 7 with Tychicus, right? This man who's introduced to the church there at Colossae. He's charged not only with delivering the letter, but expounding it to the church, right? He would be the one who would take the letter along with Philemon and believed to be Ephesians, and deliver it to the churches, read those letters before the congregation, and answer any questions and expound the text that Paul had written in the letter. Notice how Paul describes him. He's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. Oh, to have such accolades said about you, right? A faithful brother, a faithful minister, 
a faithful servant. Tychicus is someone Paul deeply loves and respects. He's, he's a man that Paul can depend upon, absolutely. The Bible first mentions him in Acts 20, verse 4. He's, he's part of Paul's missionary team, the third missionary team that travels with Paul throughout all of Europe and then back to Jerusalem. He's also mentioned in Ephesians 6.21, Titus 3.12. You see, Tychicus, like Timothy, was one of Paul's go-to men. He could depend upon Tychicus. Paul trusted him to deliver the letters. And Tychicus is also given the task of bringing the churches up to speed on how Paul's faring. How's the apostle doing? He's in chains there in Rome. Well, Tychicus is assigned the task of telling the church how Paul's doing and to bring encouragement. You see, the church is under attack. The false teachers have crept in, calling into question the sufficiency and the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Tychicus is given this letter to go and to tell them how Paul is doing to encourage them in the faith, in the good fight of faith. Notice in verse 8, Paul says, I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. You see, saints, Tychicus' work was not very glamorous. Christianity today was not pursuing him for an interview. Tychicus' ministry was pretty plain Jane, if you will. He had no Twitter following, no ministerial consultants, no buildings being named after him, no speaking engagements, no posters with his picture on them. And yet Paul trusted him because he was a faithful minister. He was a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a, a faithful servant. You see, without the ministry of Tychicus, Paul could not fulfill his commission. He could not have completed the task that God had given him. You see, Tychicus' ministry was one of quiet faithfulness. And maybe today that's the kind of ministry you have here at All Saints. Maybe you're not up front like the elders, like the pastors. Maybe you're, you're sitting there in the pew and God has given you a quiet ministry, one behind the scenes. You're faithfully serving the children. You're faithfully bringing bread and wine, literally, from the kitchen into the auditorium. We might worship in word and sacrament. You're faithfully praying for the word and for its success. You're encouraging through letter writing, through notes. You know, this is all happening behind the scenes, if you will. It's a quiet faithfulness, seemingly ignored. Well, remember Tychicus be encouraged and remember there's one who always sees. You see, our beloved elder brother, right? He's a faithful minister, a fellow servant. He see, he always sees. Jesus sees. Jesus understands. Jesus values your ministry just as he did Tychicus. You see, the church cannot operate without Tychicus. And I thought to myself, well, I have quite a few in my life. Mr. Hutton, where would I be without Mr. Hutton? We wouldn't be very efficient if it were just my gifts or without Levi, with his faithful exposition of the Word of God. So when I go on vacation, I'm not worried, oh, what is this man going to say? 
What is he going to leave unsaid? No, I know Levi's going to bring the word of God. You see, we have faithful men, many Tychicuses, if you will, in the church, who serve quietly. Beloved, also consider the quiet faithfulness of Epaphras in verses 12 to 13. Now, who was Epaphras? Remember, we met him in chapter 1. He planted the church there in Colossae, right? After being converted under Paul's ministry in Asia Minor, believed to be in Ephesus, Paul referred to Epaphras as our beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister on your behalf in chapter 1, verse 7. Here he's called a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, Epaphras was a native of Colossae, and now he's with Paul in Rome. Perhaps he's in prison. And Paul, as Paul writes the letter, Epaphras is right there, leaning over Paul's shoulder, saying, Paul, tell them about my concern. Tell them that I I send my greetings. How are they doing? I'm so concerned. I love them. I remember with such fond affection of their receptivity to the Word of God as they listened to the Word of God as I expounded on Jesus Christ and Him crucified and buried and raised. They listened with such attentiveness. And now Paul describes him in his ongoing ministry. Though he's away, his heart is in Colossae. Notice how Paul describes it. What kind of ministry does this Epaphras have? Notice what he's doing. He's always seeking the throne of grace on their behalf. Verse 12, notice what he says. Epaphras, the fellow slave, that is, is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature, complete, and fully assured in the will of God. You see, Epaphras had led many to Christ. He planted the church. He was the founding minister. But the thing that stands out to Paul above everything else about Epaphras Notice what it was, a quiet faithfulness of struggling. Struggling when no one else sees in the prayer closet with his Savior, Epaphras is struggling. He's agonizing. This is the word. It's to agonize. He has a prayerful ministry of intercession. He's wrestling with God in their behalf. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul tells us that Epaphras had told him that the church was standing fast and full of the love of the Spirit. Saints, churches do not stand fast. Churches are not full of the Spirit in a vacuum. There's no magic dust. To fill the church. No, it's through the, the struggling of the minister. It's through the struggling. It's through the agonizing of the elders and the officers of the church that the church stands fast and is immovable and continues in the midst of the storm no matter how dark the clouds and how strong the wind. The candle yet remains. It flickers in its weakness Because there's a praying man, there's a praying body of elders behind it that keeps it alive. And Jesus, the faithful servant, the beloved brother, the faithful minister, puts oil, as it were, as Bunyan would say, on the candle and it continues to burn. 
in spite of all the obstacles. You see, they're standing because Epaphras is always seeking the throne of grace. He's agonizing in prayer. You see, this is a, a costly ministry. He's wrestling with God on their behalf. Beloved, have you ever wrestled with God? I know not what you speak, Pastor. I'm afraid. Wrestling with God. I was so convicted thinking about my own ministry or, or lack thereof. You see, beloved, this is a convicting reminder that the pastor, the elder's first calling isn't just preaching, nor is it pastoring, nor is it leading. His first priority must be the Word of God, the ministry of the Word of God. And it must be bathed in prayer. It must be marinated in prayer. It, it must be prayed over. You see, the word of the gospel is only spiritually discerned. Therefore, the man of God must bathe all of his teaching in prayer. He must give himself to the quiet faithfulness of prayer. Like Acts chapter 6, right? The elders there have this little division that's beginning to, it's brewing in the church between the elders. I mean, rather between the widows, right? The Hellenistic widows and the Hebraic widows and... The Hebraic widows are being overlooked and the, and the apostles are having to give themselves to the ministering of tables. Not that they're too good to do that, but they realize their first priority must be the word of God and prayer. Hence the establishment of the diaconate, if you will, there in the early church. Notice what Epaphras prays for in verse 12. Notice what he prays, right? He's praying, he's agonizing, he's, he's toiling that you, Colossae, may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, exactly what Paul has prayed in chapter 1, verse 9, filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see, both Epaphras and Paul are praying that the saints of Colossae would be spiritually cemented, they would be moored, they would be deeply rooted in Jesus Christ, you see. He wants them to be mature, that they wouldn't be tossed to and fro like a little sailboat on the pond, but rather steadfast, immovable, rooted in Jesus Christ. Very instructive for us, isn't it? They'd be mature. What's the world need now? It needs the church to be the church. It needs the church to have mature believers who are obsessed with the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom, not just all the goodies that come with the kingdom of God as fruits of the kingdom, but with the king. Paul prays for the Galatians in chapter 4, 19, I am in the pains of childbirth. Now just sit on that for a little bit. I'm in the pains of childbirth that Christ may be formed in you. Now, you ladies who've had children, you know. You, 
you know, who am I to speak about that? I, you know, I don't know anything about it. I've seen it five times. It's impressive. But here's Paul. Right, Josh? He's a Marine. He's, he's praying like God is real. Like he really believes it. God, grow them up in Jesus. Make them mature. Root them. Form Christ in them. You see, saints, you can preach the good news like the angels at Jesus' birth. You can teach like John Calvin. You can pastor like John Newton. You can lead men like Harry Reader. But if you don't pray... If the elder does not pray, my session, listen, if we do not pray, it's all for naught. He doesn't build the kingdom through the flesh of men. Even the gifts of men, apart from prayer, apart from the attending work of the Spirit, is all for naught. One waters, one plants, but who gives the increase? Jesus Christ, the one who said, I will build my church. Now, he might use us, and praise God he does, but it's his church, he's building it through the means of prayer, means of the word of God. It's the elder's first work. And Satan in your flesh will do everything they can to keep you from the prayer closet. What I'm so amazed and how wicked my own heart is, is that I see sometimes I'm so, so foolish and so deluded to think, well, well, you've worked hard in the sermon, right? You've, you've got the exegesis right. You've parsed the verbs and the participles. You've got a coherent message you a decent outline, and somehow think, well, that's all that's needed. But God says, seek my face. And the child of God, the minister of God, the elder of God says, your face will I seek. It's all for naught without prayer. Men, the, the problems that we're having in the church today, a lot of it's because we're, we're prayerless. We're prayerless. Luther, it's always good to ask Luther what he thinks about something, was asked by a friend what his plans were for the following day. He says, work, work early until late. In fact, I have so much to do, I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. <laughs> Well, notice also, though, notice how Epaphras leaves the prayer closet. What does he do? Does he just sit in some pietistic corner and wait for something to happen? No, that's not what he does. He got busy laboring in God's vineyard. Verse 13, Paul says, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. You see, Epaphras was laboring not just in Colossae, but in the larger presbytery. Yes, he was a Presbyterian. He was busy in the presbytery. He was active. He had a, had a footprint in the presbytery. They knew who he was. 
and I thought about my church and I, how grateful I am for, for the men that God has given me in my life. The elders that we have here, church, they, they serve in quiet faithfulness behind the scenes on Thursday nights into, late into the evening, praying and seeking God's face, ordaining men, calling men, equipping men, examining men, shepherding the church, doing the business of the church beyond just Colossae, but into Laodicea and Heropolis. Beloved, you can be thankful that your elders have a footprint in the larger church, in the ministry of the church, in the James River Presbytery, in the General Assembly. Paul says he worked hard. It was painful labor. It was strenuous work. You see, it's not for the faint of heart. It's not just the one hour and the nice parking places and the free lunches every now and then. That's not what just is all about. It's agonizing and it's strenuous and it's hard. And you better grow up, Bullock. Think of the metaphors that Paul uses to describe ministry. Athletes, soldiers, hardworking farmers. It's not for the faint of heart. I don't say that to somehow muster your sympathy, but just so you can pray that I would be such a man, that Levi would be such a man, that your ruling elders would be such men, not lazy men who depends merely on their gifts, but not the gift giver. Oh, beloved, that's a slippery slope, a deceitful slope. We can't be absolutely sure, but there's this other guy. Notice in verse 17, Archippus. We don't know much about him. This is the only place he's mentioned other than Philemon, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Notice he needs encouragement. Notice what Paul does. He, he writes this a letter. He assigns Tychicus to deliver it, and he puts it in the plural. And y'all, second person plural, speak to Archippus. See that, take heed. Tell him to fulfill his ministry that he received in the Lord. Isn't that interesting that Paul would call this guy out on the carpet in the congregation? Right? Be like me calling one of my elders out now. Uh, Jim, I need to make sure. We need to come alongside and help Jim fulfill the ministry Christ has given. That's what Paul does. You see, ministers, elders, deacons, they need encouragement. Paul understands that because this is the communion of the saints. This is the body of Christ. We're in this together. See, the pastor is charged to pray. He's to preach. He's to encourage. And Paul understands that at times even the pastor, the elder, needs encouragement to fulfill Christ's God-given ministry that he might quietly be faithful in the ministry God has given him. Well, second thing we see, and these are shorter, that was long, and I appreciate your patience, right? My symmetry on my sermons isn't always that great. Secondly, we see genuine fellowship, right? our partnership. In Colossians 3.10, Paul said that believers have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 11 of the same chapter, 
he proceeds and he says this, in this body, in this church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this new humanity that God has created in Christ with Christ as the last Adam and those united to him, his children, there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And beloved, nowhere is this more clearly seen than in the oneness in Jesus Christ, fleshed out in these closing verses of Colossians 4. Notice in verse 9 we're introduced to this Onesimus. Now this is a, a runaway slave. He belonged to Philemon. Philemon was the master, and it was believed that the church at Colossae met in Philemon's house. And Tychicus was going to take this letter to Philemon's house there in Colossae, and they were going to address the situation. Now, it was a capital offense if a slave ran away. Hence the writing of Philemon, the book. Paul will take time to sit down and write a letter to Philemon, reminding him to receive Onesimus. But here Paul mentions him as our faithful and beloved brother. And Epaphras was a Colossian, a Gentile convert, like the beloved physician Luke. But not only is Paul being supported by Gentile Christians, notice the three men in verses 10 through 11. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. Mark and Jesus, who is called Justice. Paul says concerning them, these are the only men of the circumcision among whom my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. You see, beloved, what we see is Jew and Gentile, slave and free, all coming together in Christ, serving side by side in the kingdom of God. You see, the false teachers are seeking to divide the church, and Paul reminds them in these four chapters that the gospel brings diverse people from all types of ethnicities, races, and socioeconomic backgrounds and unite them in the new and the better Adam. Oh, beloved, what a beautiful thing is the body of Christ. The world has nothing compared to the body of Christ. We have Nia visiting this with us today. She's, her father is the pastor there in Antigua. My dear friend, my beloved brother, a fellow servant, a slave of Jesus, I love that man, right? He doesn't share very much, very, very, he's not like me in a lot of ways. In some ways he is. We always tease each other. We're like brothers from another mother. But one thing we have in common is Jesus Christ. Oh, that the church would understand the oneness that we have across all these ethnic boundaries, races, sociology, right? All these things, but we're united in Jesus Christ. A quiet faithfulness, a genuine fellowship. Thirdly, we see a heartfelt forgiveness. Again, perhaps no place better do we see the outworking and power of the gospel than in forgiveness, right? Not only forgiveness received from God, but the forgiveness that we extend to one another horizontally, right? That's where we see the kingdom of God at work, where it's fleshed out, where the rubber meets the road is, are you inclined, is your heart so inclined to forgive me, ready to forgive, right? It's clearly seen here, right? Onesimus, right? It's a perfect case study. He's a slave. He's run away. He's being resent back to his master Philemon. He gets converted. And now Paul's sending him back 
And in the letter to Philemon, Paul urges Philemon, notice this, to forgive Onesimus, to be reconciled to him. Verse 16 of Philemon, receive Onesimus, this runaway slave that you own, like a man would own a pair of shoes. That's what it was like. I want you to receive him no longer as a slave, Philemon, but I want you to receive him now, reconciled in Jesus Christ as a fellow brother. That's what the gospel does. And Paul was not just one to talk a good game. He walked it. He modeled forgiveness and the necessity for it. Look at verse 10. Notice where Paul mentions John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. Somewhere previously, Paul no doubt had written regarding John Mark. And now Paul says, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now remember now, there needs to be a little context here to help us understand what's actually happening with this John Mark fellow. You may remember when we went through Acts, in Acts 13, Paul's first missionary journey. There was Paul, there was Barnabas, and there was Barnabas' cousin, John Mark. And after ministering on the island of Cyprus, they landed in the mainland there in Asia Minor in Perga, and Dr. Luke informs us that Mark, for unknown reasons, decides to abandon ship. Now, we can speculate as the day is long. Well, maybe Mark doesn't have it, whatever it is. Maybe he was homesick. He wanted to go back to Jerusalem. We don't know. whole host of reasons. A little later, we're told in Acts 15 that Paul and Barnabas, having returned and reported... To the church, all that God had done, decided to return. And they planted to the churches they planted. Barnabas wants John Mark to join them. Paul, let's take John Mark. Come on. Let's take him. I think he's grown up a little bit. <laughs> I, I think he has what it takes now. I saw him reading Bobbing the other day. I know he's a man of prayer. He loves the church. He, he, he understands the church directory. He's read it. He keeps it beside his nightstand. It's beside him. He prays over it. Let's take him. Paul says, no, we can't take him. We're not going to take him. And the word of God tells us through Luke that there arose a sharp disagreement. Not a little disagreement, but a sharp disagreement. I don't even know if we've had that kind of disagreement on the session. I don't want it. But there's such a disagreement that they split. So Barnabas, his heart still with his cousin, John Mark, takes John Mark and goes to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas and he goes back to visit the churches there in Asia Minor. Well, what's the lesson for us? Beloved, we all know that there will be disagreements in the church our tongues will get out over our proverbial skis and we will end up saying hurtful things. If you stick with me long enough, I'm going to hurt you. I, I don't take any pride in it. I just, that is what it is. I'm a sinful man. The best of men at the end of the day are at best still men. Have clay feet. We're going to hurt one another. And yet God expects us to be mature Christians, children 
as those who know the will of God and take ownership for our mistakes, take ownership for our sins, how we hurt each other. We are to be those who are quick to repent and go to that brother or sister we have sinned against and make it right. That's exactly what occurs with Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. Things were resolved, forgiveness given, and forgiveness received. And now here in Colossians chapter 4, Mark, who earlier deserted Paul and Barnabas, is now being commended by Paul. If he comes to you, welcome him. You see, they didn't a beautiful picture of forgiveness, not hypothetical, abstract, theological sophistry somewhere. No, this is real relationships between these four men. Three men, rather. If he comes to you, welcome him. And at the end of Paul's life, as Paul's awaiting execution, Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.11. This is what Paul says. He's getting ready to be beheaded for the gospel of Jesus, to die as a martyr. This is what he says regarding Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it really beautiful that reconciliation the forgiveness within the kingdom of God. All the doubts about Mark are now gone. The gospel has produced heartfelt forgiveness for both Paul and Mark and Barnabas. Get Mark, bring him, for he's very useful for me for ministry. You see, the gospel is no guarantee that conflicts and problems will not arise in the church, but the gospel is the power of God to bring When we humble ourselves before a crucified Savior, when we get low, when we get weak and we embrace our sinfulness, when we confess our weaknesses, His strength is made perfect. You know what begins to flow? The power of the kingdom of God. The power of the age to come begins to operate in this place. Like the Spirit hovering over the water. It hovers over, it fills the church. And Christ is more valued, more treasured. He's the subject of every conversation. He's the Rose of Sharon. He's the the fairest Lord Jesus. He's the Savior of his people. Because heartfelt forgiveness is at work. You see, Paul says this in Ephesians 4, 31 to 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Today, is there someone in the congregation this morning you need to make things right with? You know what you need to do? Before you come to this table, you need to lay your gift at the altar and go and make it right. You need to confess your sin to your brother. Ask for forgiveness. You see, obedience is better than sacrifice. Lastly, I briefly mentioned Demas. Why Demas? Because Demas, I believe, is an implicit warning for us. Notice how he's commended by Paul here in verse 15. But in 2 Timothy 4, Paul instructs Timothy to bring Mark. Then he adds this in verse 10. Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas in love with the present world has deserted me. And I thought to myself, there's an implicit warning here in this commendation of Demas. In Colossians, he's commended. In 2 Timothy 4, 
Paul says he's deserted him. Why? Why did Demas desert Paul? You know why? For the love of the world. The tentacles of the world, this present evil age, the fool's gold of Vanity Fair began to wrap itself around the heart of Demas. And before long, Demas, a faithful servant, being commended by Paul, is now deserting Paul. You see, over time, the world had captured Demas's heart. That's just a warning for you. Warning for you today, church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works to will within you. Don't be presumptuous. Don't coddle sin. No doubt that's probably what Demas did. Little sin, little secret sin. Didn't want to bring it to the cross. Maybe it was self-righteousness, pride. We don't know. We can speculate day is long. But we know he deserted Paul for the love of the world. What does it profit a man, woman, boy, or girl, to gain the whole world and lose their own soul? Remember Demas. Let it be a warning to us. And lastly, verse 18, Paul in chains tells the amethyst, the secretary, give me the pen. Chains rustling. You can hear it, can't you? He's, he takes it in his hand. He's sitting there under house arrest. And he writes these words with his final words to Colossae, church he'd never been to. Remember my chains. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And I thought, remember my chains. That reminds me of that verse we looked at eons ago back when there was the wheel and fire right after that when I started Colossians. Remember that when Paul says, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Reminding us that the gospel doesn't go forth except through weakness. Through human weakness, through chains, through being marginalized and stamped out, canceled, right? As the church takes the low place, she gets on her knees, that's where her power is. See, that's where Satan doesn't want you on your knees. He wants you more consumed with what's going on in D.C. than what's going on in the heavenly places. He wants you fighting carnally with armaments of flesh rather than depending and looking to the Holy Spirit to grow his church. You see, that's what he wants. He wants you so preoccupied with this world. Oh, beloved, we're fools, aren't we? I'm a fool. I'm a minister. You pay me to be preoccupied with heaven, and yet I struggle as much. I'm the chief struggler. I'm the chief sinner in this place. Let's keep our eye on him in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Let's be obsessed with him. Will you help me be obsessed with him? Please. I beg you. 
I promise I'll try my weakness to help you be obsessed with him. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your promise that you will build your church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Lord, we don't look to the arm of flesh. We don't look to horses and chariots. We don't want to look to those things. And yet so often we find ourselves doing that very thing. Oh, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us live a life that's consistent with the life that we say we live with our lips. Oh, that our lives might be congruent with what we espouse with our mouths. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, may you give us grace to make much of you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.